Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 14. That would be page 850 on a blue pew Bible. I encourage you to follow along there if you do not have your own. Um, and, and believe it or not, we are coming down the home stretch of the Gospel of Mark, a book that we began January 2018. Um, and I would say this, from here on out, um, these are going to be probably some of the most familiar passages in the Bible that you have heard, talked about, preached on, that you have studied, uh, because we're coming into really like the heart of what we call Easter weekend. And so everybody goes to church on Easter. So you have heard these stories spoken about year after year after year, as long as you've been um, in a church um, on things like the Lord's Supper last week, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. They'll be very familiar to you. And I as I've said before, the, the danger we have with facing familiar passages in the Bible is that if we have been in and around churches for a long time, we immediately go to this mindset. Okay, I know this one. Yeah, I, I got this one down. I have been there. I've seen that. I've heard that preached by preachers better than you, Pastor. And, and I think I'm just going to be, I'm, I'm good. Tell me when you close up. It's like going to a restaurant you go to all the time. And you, somebody brings you the menu and you go, no, 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 I'm good. I know what I'm getting here. Let's just get the show on the road, all right? Let's get things cooking back there. I know what I'm going to expect. And so I say all that to say this. Um, be careful with that. The, the word is unchanging, but you are different every time you come to it. And this morning might be one of the most agonizing texts in the Bible, one of the most intense passages in the Bible and as we dig into it, and we are going to dig in, it's going to bring about all kinds of questions and profound mysteries that run deep. And I say that to say this, it will be more relevant to your lives than you might initially realize. And if we don't take a hard look at the menu this morning, so to speak, we're going to miss out. And so this passage is going to bring us into the deep end of the theological pool, and where you're going to have to think closely with me. I'm going to challenge you to think closely with me because I've, I've said this before, but I believe nothing will stir your heart more for God than in, engaging your mind on God. That it's, we're not just after emotionalism in church. We're just trying to get our emotions stirred up. It's goes, no, we're going to engage our minds. If you engage your minds on the word of God, that will do more to stir your heart and shape your life than anything else. And so um, hang with me this morning. Even our students in the room, middle school, high school, don't check out. There's something here for us here, and you can do it. You can dial in and track along in this passage. And so uh, a final word, just a heads up to all my note takers in the room. There's not a clear outline this week. Um, but if you're like, dude, I need points. Give me points. All right, I'll, he, up front, I'll just tell you this, that we're going to break this passage into three sections, and it kind of follows this traditional storyline flow where you have kind of the, the rising action and then the climax and then the following action. So if you need points, there you go. There's your points. Let's get going. Let's start. We're going to be Mark 14. We're going to start verses 26 to 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. One of the reasons it's been a joy to preach verse by verse through this gospel is that over time we become very familiar with Mark's style of writing. Every author, especially the gospel writers who are writing about the same things, the account, the life and account of Jesus Christ, they all have their own style. And if you had to sum up Mark's style in one phrase, I think it would be this, brief but vivid. His accounts are shorter than the other Gospels because he does not include as much detail and his dialogues are quicker and somewhat abbreviated throughout. So he's brief, but then when he does add a piece of detail, it's vivid. It stands out because he tends to not really do that. So if you have, think about your circle of friends or your family, and you always have that person in your circle that doesn't really talk that much, you know, but then when they do say something, like everyone's listening. You got that person in your mind? Like, like, it's very memorable. So you get to the end of the night, and let's just say your friend Mark, he said two things all night, but you know and remember what he said, as opposed to the other person who just can't stop talking and talking and talking, and then you get to the end of the night, you're like, I don't even know what that person was saying, all right? Like, we all want to be Mark. We're all probably more like that other person, but Mark is brief yet vivid, and, and we see this in the phrase that began our passage this morning. It's easy to gloss over, but he includes it intentionally, and it's this. But when they had sung a hymn, think about how last week ended. It was the Last Supper, Jesus saying probably the most shocking thing they had heard up to that point, kind of going off the script of the Passover script, saying this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. These are physical elements signifying a spiritual truth of grace meeting betrayal. Shocking words. And yet, Mark is careful to include, they sung in response together before leaving. During Passover week, it was commonplace for people to sing one of the Hallel hymns. Hallel meaning mean praise in Hebrew, and that is Psalms 113 and 118, the Hallel Psalms. That just really focus on giving praise and thanksgiving to God. This morning, the song we started with, um, Forever, was a song written based upon one of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 118. But Mark including this detail, for a guy who does not include a lot of detail, shows the power and the importance of not just music in general, but God's people, hear me, singing together. Bible quiz, do you know what the most common command in the Bible is? People will often say the phrase, do not fear, but that's second. You know what the first most common command in the Bible is? Sing. Give praise. Praise the Lord. And that command is always given to God's people corporately, not just individuals. The most common command in Scripture is sing. God has wired mankind with a love for music, for poetry and song, with musical arrangements. You rarely, if ever, will meet someone who just says, you know what, I don't like music. Have you met that person? I haven't. Introduce yourself to me after the church today. If you're like, I just hate all music. Everyone loves music, some kind. Everyone's drawn to some kind of musical arrangements of words and lyrics put together that communicate some kind of truth. I think we can all agree there are good songs that talk about any number of things. But for the people of God, the best songs 
are the ones that speak about who God is and what he has done. So when, we, when, when Steve started a service, hey, could you kind of stand and, and we're going to sing together? That's something that we hear over and over and over again, that we kind of get used to it. But that is a living out fact that we are being obedient to the most common command in Scripture. That God has wired us to stand and sing together. Hear me, I can't sing. It's good I'm in the front row because you don't want to be in front of me, okay, when I sing. I was singing in front of Abby Davies. Man, that girl can sing like eighth grade. Someone get a mic in that girl's hand ASAP. But I love singing together with this church. Why? Not because I get to flex my singing muscles, but because of the object of what we are praising. The lyrics of what you sing are far more important than the style of music you are singing. And I say that to say this, because in a church, we all have preferences when it comes to music. We all have preferences of, of a style of music that we enjoy. And nothing at a church is micro-analyzed more week to week than the music. Of what instruments are up there? And what instruments are not up there? And how loud is it? Or how soft is it? And, and who is up there? And who is not up there? And how many are up there? And all these questions, if you get around church in a while, you kind of can just start folding your arms and worship because there's something up there you don't like. And the call upon all of us is to not allow the truth of what we are actually singing get crowded out. Because truth proclaimed in song is far more important than how a recording of that song would sound that morning. In a recent article for the Gospel Coalition, Brett, Brett McCracken wrote this, God is too glorious to not worship enthusiastically, even if the style of worship stretches us beyond our comfort zone. So I'm not saying this to like come down on anyone. I'll have like this list of people, like I hope you're listening, all right? Like we, honestly, we just don't get that many complaints about our music, which, I mean, praise God, I think we are just blessed with a lot of talented people. But pastorally, this phrase is really important because here's what I know. As the preacher, on Sunday afternoon in a few hours, you might be able to recall a general sense of what was preached. You could think of the passage that was talked about. You might think of like one truth that was put forward, one application you're thinking about, one takeaway that maybe hit you in a deeper way. But chances are far better that you're going to be humming a tune from the morning, that you're going to remember some of the lyrics that were sung that morning. So it's important that we sing together, and not only that, but that we sing good, theologically rich and true songs. Guys, before they left, they sung a hymn. Mark is brief, but he is vivid, and I am grateful he included that. And from there, he and his 12 disciples, they go on to the Mount of Olives. This is a uh, mountain a hit, uh, about a mile outside the city of Jerusalem. And on the way, or when they get there, Jesus again makes a grim prediction. Last week he said, one of you will betray me, but now he casts the net out a little bit further. He says, you will all fade away. And then he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You know, I pointed it out last week. I want to do it again because we see it over and over again the tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We see it again in this verse. Jesus says to these men he's walking with, you're all going to fall away. You will each abandon me, and it's going to be your choice. 
And it's going to be on your own accord. And it's a decision that you are free to make. And this is the way you're going to make it. And in God's sovereignty, it was known beforehand. You see those three words again? For it is written. Zechariah was written hundreds of years prior. And it was known that you would do so. You're the ones making the choice. But God is sovereign over it all. And those two things are taken together. Because who's the one? If you went back to Zechariah and looked at Zechariah 13, who's the one who said that? That I will strike the shepherd. God. God the Father is sovereign, and he is the sovereign author who orchestrates Jesus going to the cross and everything that will happen. He did not get tricked. God did not get backed into a corner by Satan. He's not on the ropes going, I only have one play left, and it's to send Jesus. He did not get forced. And so if you were asked the question by just somebody on the street and say, hey, who sent Jesus to the cross? Was it God or was it Judas in conjunction with the Jewish leaders and Roman government? What's the answer? Yes. No, no, no. Was it God or was it all these men who sinfully brought him to the cross? You know what the answer is? Yes. It's divine sovereignty. It's human responsibility. And it's all throughout the scriptures. God will never be out of control. He will never do something that he didn't want to do. He will never be tricked into doing anything. And yet, mankind is responsible for their actions. And the two will never cancel one another out. You see that I mean? We're getting to the deep end of the pool, and it's not even, that's not even the deepest yet this morning. But even in this statement that Jesus makes to his disciples, you know, I, I think we, we always assume what, what, what kind of tone is Jesus talking with And I don't think he's rebuking them. I don't think he's like holding this against them in a bitter way. Like, you know what? We've been together for three years and tonight you're all going to abandon me. Just like that. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. I don't think that's the way Jesus is talking to these men. I think he's almost doing it in like a shepherding kind of way. And the reason is because he immediately provides them assurance. Did you see it? He gives a sneak peek of his resurrection. Look again back at verse 26 in your Bible. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's fascinating. Galilee is the region that they're all from. It's where the ministry started, to the northern part of Israel, to the north of Jerusalem. And Jesus knows, going into the weekend, going into this very night, how this is all going to end. And he's going to die alone. But he will be resurrected. And he will draw his disciples near to him once again. So he's almost cultivating the ground. He goes, guys, you're all going to fade away. But when I'm raised up, not if, when, I'll meet you in Galilee. Peter, we know Peter throughout the gospel. He's, he's the bold one. He's the one who talks it out. He goes, nope, not me. Jesus, even if all these other morons walk away, it'll just be me and you, brother. I'm not going anywhere. Not a chance. And Jesus hears this and he responds, Peter, this very night you will deny me three times. This makes Peter angry. And he essentially calls Jesus a liar. He goes, no, you're wrong. Jesus, you're wrong. That won't happen. I will not deny you. And apparently he's passionate enough and convincing enough that the other disciples are around him and they start to chime in like, yeah, us either. We're all going to be here. You've heard the phrase, common phrase, pride comes before the fall. 
You might wonder, is that in the Bible somewhere? Or is that just, you know, one of those phrases that gets assumed? Well, actually, yes, it is in the Bible. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Let the reader understand. Let's keep going. Mark 13, now we're going to read, sorry, 14. Now we're going to read verses 32 36. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You know, the most common way I feel like I've heard this passage get approached is that it provides us these principles on how we ought to pray. This is Jesus praying we should pray like Jesus, especially the times in our lives when God's answer to our deepest prayers are, is no. And that's true. Like We can glean good principles and applications about our lives in prayer here, but I, I'm nervous if we just start there. If we immediately rush to, hey, what does this mean for me and to my life? I think we begin to miss the gravity and the profound weight of what is happening here. Like, I need to be careful with equating um, my requests in prayer with what Jesus just asked for. Like, me asking to be healed from a cold is not the same as Jesus being asked for the cup to be removed from him, the cup of God's wrath. So before we apply, and there's a time to apply, but not yet, this text, this text invites us to marvel at what I think is the most agonizing and raw scene in the scriptures. Like these verses are sacred ground. They get to a place called Gethsemane, and it's a, it's a vast garden that was either near or on the Mount of Olives. And he requests that just his inner circle continues on with him. His closest disciples, Peter and James and John, and they enter with him. And for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus struggle. And he confides to these men, my soul is sorrowful, even to the point of death. He can barely stand. And put yourself in the shoes of Peter and John and James watching this. I imagine, and it's the reason why it was recorded, this is a moment that they will never forget. Their guy, Jesus, their role model was now struggling, physically struggling before their eyes. It reminded me of one of my earliest memories I've ever had. I, I have a terrible memory about my childhood. I think it was great, but, I, you know, I, I just, especially like pre-six years old, I just got nothing. Except I got a couple, again, very vivid things that I do remember. And maybe the first one, I was either four or five years old. I was at my grandfather's funeral. It was my dad's dad. It was at the Salem Church in Staten Island. I remember sitting in the first couple rows on the left side with the family. And after the service, my dad and his three brothers um, were going to carry the casket down the center aisle. 
And I remember seeing my dad as he picked up and started to walk. It was the first time I ever saw him cry. And his face just breaking up. And that hit five-year-old me like a ton of bricks. Like in my young mind, like my dad didn't struggle with anything. He's, he's dad. He knows everything. He comforts me when I cry. He's my rock. And I remember in those first few days, I didn't have a category for this. I didn't know what to do with it. My dad was crying. And it's a moment I'll never forget. And I imagine that is similar to what these disciples were looking And my dad, who was imperfect and flawed like every dad really is, they are looking to Jesus, who was completely perfect. And he's struggling. And he says the hour has come, and he collapses to the ground, and he prays. And all Mark gives us is this line, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Here's the thing. We know he was praying like this for at least an hour. Because as we'll see in a little bit, he'll go back to his disciples and he'll say, Hey guys, why couldn't you stay awake for even one hour? And then he goes back in and prays again. And then Matthew's account says he went back a third time. So it could be three hours of this prayer. It wasn't just a brief moment of struggle. It was a prolonged, stress-filled time where he began to sweat blood. Which, by the way, is possible. Look it up. Just not right now. I mean, you can, but I mean, wait till this afternoon. But it's possible to be in such a stressed state for a prolonged period of time that you begin to sweat blood. And this is this kind of sacred, intimate, and very mysterious glimpse into the Trinity. The, the, the Trinity, the, one of the landmark pillars of Christian theology and faith, that God is one God in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, you know, there are people in really whole religions which, that will point to this text and say, you see, Jesus was not really God. Jesus was created, and he was like God in some ways, and he was even referred to, referred to as God's son, but that really just means he was kind of of first importance. He's not actually God's son for all of eternity, and Jesus is actually not God, because otherwise, this scene wouldn't happen. This sense of struggle wouldn't happen if he was really God. But that really exposes a, a lack of knowledge of, of, of Christology, Christology, the study of who Christ is. That he is fully God and fully man. The early church for 400 years had to fight over and over and over again to protect this from heresy. That he was not, um, he was not 50-50. He was not God acting like a man or he's not man acting like a God. He had two natures, fully man, fully God. And it is outside the reality of our experience because you know what? I am one person with one nature and so are you. Jesus, one person, two natures. And it's profound, and it's mysterious, and yet, in your Bible, it's very clear. And that is true in every moment of his life. Every moment, he is always fully man and fully God. But certain passages will showcase one of those natures. We've seen it all throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's been telling his disciples all along, I will be handed over to the chief priests, tortured, killed, and then on the third day, rise. 
He just assured his disciples, when I am raised, I will meet you in Galilee. These are not predictions he hopes will come true. These are him showcasing his divine nature. This will happen with absolute certainty. And yet, at the same time, in his human nature, he's struggling with it. To the point where he even asked the Father, remove this cup from me. It was agonizing. He couldn't bear taking the cup of the Father's wrath in this moment. You know, it's not the first time we saw his human nature showcased. In in Mark chapter 4, if you remember, we were told that he was asleep in a boat. That Jesus had to sleep. He lived in a physical embody that got tired and he had to sleep. And you know what? He preferred a cushion for his head. Why? Because why wouldn't he? He was human. We like cushions when we sleep. If you're one of those people who sleep without a pillow, okay, but you're a little weird. That's not normal. Sleep with a pillow. It will be better. In chapter 11, we've told he was hungry when he woke up, and so he went looking for breakfast at a fig tree. Why? Because why wouldn't he? People get hungry when they wake up and they want to eat. He was human. It's been showcased before. But now here, never has someone prayed facing greater temptation and agony than Jesus did in this moment. And what really got him off balance was not the fact that he was going to endure some physical pain. It was not just the fact that he was going to have to endure nails in his hands and his feet. It was the spiritual, relational separation from the Father. It was the weight of taking on the sins of the world, none of which are his own. He was sinless, perfect, without blemish, and yet he would be taking on the sins of the world, which would separate him from his eternal Father. And he always knew it was coming. But as it approached, it just knocked him off balance. We can kind of relate to that. We have something on the horizon that we always know it's coming, something big, something that's going to be hard. We kind of always know it's coming, but you get to the night of, you get knocked off balance a little bit, don't you? It just kind of hits you, like, this is coming tomorrow. And it happened with Jesus. But we need to know the depth of the cross is not just that he bled and that it was painful, It's that he would be abandoned by the Father so that we wouldn't have to be. He went through hell so that we wouldn't have to. And we will never know the depth of this agony he had in the garden. We will never know what it's like to part with somebody you've been with eternally. We know when somebody passes and after a long marriage, they've been together 50, 60, 70 years, that's powerful. But even that is not even like a drop in the ocean compared to what Jesus and the Father's relationship is. And when his Father was going to turn his face from him, we will never know, but we can marvel at it and be grateful for it. One other piece before we read the last bit of the passage this morning. I think it's important in our day to say this dramatic scene affirms the exclusivity of Christ. Hang with me. One of the most common objections that, or issues that people have with orthodox biblical faith is that it claims Jesus is the only way. So you talk to somebody who doesn't believe, you just talk to somebody in our very secular culture, and they hear that and they go, why does it have to be that way? 
Why can't everyone just have their own path to God? There's, there's many paths to God. None of us have all the answers. Everyone's going to find it for themselves. Many ways to eternal life and to heaven. So, okay, Jesus may be a way for you, but he's not the way for everyone. You have people in your life who struggle with that? It's a real struggle. Maybe you in here this morning, that's a, that's a real struggle for you. Why does Christianity have to be so exclusive? How can people honestly claim that they know of the one way you can have a relationship with God and it happens to be through Jesus Christ? Like, isn't that just a little narrow? Can't you even say that's a little unloving to hold to that doctrine and then just project on that and everybody in the world and Ridgewood and Bolivia to the ends of the earth? You know, I quoted uh, a woman named Priscilla Shire earlier this year on this very question when she had said, you know what, that's a good question. But it's not the right question. The right question is how could a God who is so holy love us so much that he provided any way for sinners to be saved? Jesus, face to the ground, think about this with me, is asking the Father if there's any other way, then let this cup pass from me. If all things are possible for you, and they are, Father, I know that better than anyone. If there's any other way to forgive sinners and redeem their souls and renew their relationship with you, then let this cup pass. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. Question, if there was any other way for God to forgive men and women other than through the death of his son, do you think he would have sent Jesus to the cross? How unloving of a father would he be if he ordained this to happen and then afterwards say, oh, by the way, this is just one way. This is just one way. You can find all kinds of other ways to me. You, there's all kinds of other gods or beliefs, or you just live a pretty good life and then we'll figure it out down the road. But the death of my son is one way. That's insane. The answer is, if there were other ways, he would have not have sent Jesus to the cross and faced the agony. And the reason is because he is the only way. And the forgiveness of sin before a holy God can only be accomplished through a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus is the only person in the history of the world who accomplished that. Which is why in the book of Hebrews we are told that it was for the joy set before him, for, of Jesus. It was joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. Because of the joy of setting men and women free. The joy of satisfying judgment. The, the joy of providing a new life for those who believe in him. So not only is speaking of Jesus as the only way of the Father not unloving, it's in fact the most loving thing we could proclaim to people in our life. And so maybe this needs to be said, maybe not, but I want to be clear, I am all for religious freedom. For all religions and a government that, that casts that forth and really means it. I think everyone should be free to decide for themselves, and I would not support a government if all of a sudden they said, hey, everyone has to be a Christian. I think that would be a terrible move. It's never worked out in history. And that paves the way for all kinds of issues, including false salvations. But in a place where we can be grateful for a freedom of religion, we should not be unashamed in our stance that Jesus is the only way to God and press people to believe in him, not, not to lord that over them, but to extend them the invite that we received ourselves. All right, let's finish up. 
Mark 14, 37 to 42. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In the midst of intense struggle, which will end with Jesus ultimately remaining on the pathway of faithfulness, not my will, your will be done, he is still outward focused and discipling his closest followers. Again, I don't think this is Jesus being impatient or bitter towards Peter, like, really, Peter? Come on, man, one hour. You couldn't do it. I don't think he's surprised by their inability to keep watch because he knows they don't really grasp all this right now. They will. But right now, they, they just don't really know what's going on. They haven't put the pieces together. They desire to follow him. They want to be strong. But they will fail in the temptations of the flesh because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this is clear evidence as to why Jesus had to go through with his mission to the cross. Because if it were not for his blood-bought sacrifice, his disciples, they would fall away and not return. Why? Because the flesh is weak. And without Christ, we are not able to not sin. You get that? Like, without Christ, we are not able to not sin. And this would be the fate of all of us, that we are not capable outside the person and work of Jesus Christ to obey his command to keep watch to resist temptation, to be faithful, to hang on. You know, we talked a lot about the Father and the Son today, but do not miss the presence and the role of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He's often neglected in not only theology, but in our very lives. The Holy Spirit is God, as much God as Jesus, as much as God as the Father, and yet distinct from them. And the only reason the Bible tells us that Jesus was able to remain faithful to live a sinless life, to persevere through temptation, including this final temptation in the garden, was because the Holy Spirit was upon him, sustaining him, anointing him. And after Jesus is risen and ascends back to the Father, he will send the Holy Spirit to all those who believe in him. And the Spirit will indwell these believers. And so that's our belief about the Holy Spirit, that the moment somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ, even a childlike faith, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within you. And it's the Spirit that applies the work of Christ to the heart of the believer. Here's why that's important, not just for a theology test, but here we have Peter, and he can't stay awake for an hour and keep watch because of the flesh is weak. But he will become a new person in the book of Acts. Why? What's the difference? In the book of Acts, he has the Spirit within him. And it's almost like two different people, because it is two different people. Peter without the Spirit, Peter with the Spirit. And he's going to walk in it and walk by it. And he's going to be courageous, and he's going to be bold, and he's going to be loving. And he's going to be capable of putting the flesh to death, not perfectly, but effectively. And this is what faith in Jesus does. It places the Holy Spirit within you and equips you to be watchful against temptation, against the traps of the enemy. So now... Brothers and sisters in Christ who have the Spirit, 
you can emulate Jesus' model that he put in the garden for you of praying in the midst of pain and painful circumstances of what to do when you're overwhelmed and you're stressed and you'll know where to go, how to handle the times in our lives when your deepest, most heartfelt prayers go to God and the answer is no. That you have in you what Jesus had on him in the garden, the ability to say, not my will, Father, but yours be done in my life. And through it all, the Spirit will continually point you back to Jesus Christ. We sang it this morning. Just turn your eyes. You're looking this way. Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus himself, who despite the struggle to drink the cup on our behalf, trusted in God's will, stayed on the path of faithful obedience, and in doing so, provided us a way to be saved, to be in right standing with God by faith. So even when we do still fall away, the moments we are prone to wander, prone to lead the God, leave the God I love, we are always brought back to Jesus who says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Let's pray.